0: Okay, let's paint the picture. Hey Kate, so John and I have decided not to move our wedding and are just going to have a small gathering quite soon. But we aren't sure legally what we need to do. Can we draft a contract, sign it and keep it in the safe? Do we even need a contract? Are there different ways to even be married in South Africa? We really have no clue where to start. We would really appreciate your help. Just a caveat, tall isn't getting married. She just had to be my first guinea pig. Hi, I'm Katie, a newly qualified attorney navigating the T's and C's of life living in Cape Town, South Africa. Join me every second week where I chat about various aspects of the law that you thought you didn't need to know, but now you do. Welcome to Flawed. I'd like to stop before we start and point out that there are a myriad number of marriages that exist in South Africa. Not all are recognized and regulated by our law. In this episode and the episode to come, I will only be covering what the law says about marriage in the conventional sense. I definitely want to cover religious and customary marriages in episodes to come speaking about the law which exists and how case law is developing, bringing about change in this area of law. To quote The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. So, A meets B, they date, they break up, they date, they get engaged. I do know that it's not that easy, but you get the idea so you liked it and you put a ring on it now what engagement law in south africa is interesting as it's not a requirement that you get engaged before you get married the question on everyone's mind is if it doesn't work out do you have to give the ring back well like most things in law there isn't a yes or no answer. It's more like a maybe. From a law perspective, an engagement is, in essence, a legal agreement where two people have the intention of creating a legal obligation in the future, i.e. to get married. Even though nothing is in writing, by your words, you've concluded a contract, Because an engagement is a legal contract, there are certain requirements which must be met in order for it to be valid. Requirement number one is that each party must have the requisite capacity. This means that you need to be over 18, you cannot be mentally impaired, and you should not be under the influence of alcohol or drugs. The next requirement is that there needs to be consensus, i.e. the parties need to agree. The next requirement is whether the engagement is lawful. For instance, in South Africa, you cannot marry a parent. If one was engaged to a parent, this means that the contract concluded between the parties would be unlawful. The next and last requirement is possibility. This means that you should not already be engaged or married, as this would render the contract impossible. Sorry, sometimes the technical stuff can be a bit long winded. So I'll give you a two second break to listen to this jingle. Okay. So we liked it, we put a ring on it, and now we're engaged. Legally, this creates rights and obligations between the parties. It's a promise, and as such, it has legal consequences. Unfortunately, life happens and things can go south. Now what? This amounts to breaking a promise or as we like to say in legalese, breaching a contract. Our common law, a term I'll explain at some point, recognised that one party may have a claim against the other for a breach. This claim could take two forms. It could be a delictual claim, which is for personal injury, i.e., the humiliation incurred as a result of breaking off the engagement, or the next claim, which is a contractual claim for financial loss. Financial loss, you say? Well, maybe you could get the ring back. The general rule, according to common law, there's that word again, I promise I'll explain it later, or gifts other than small tokens i.e. flowers and chocolates, should be returned. The engagement ring is given in contemplation of marriage, and this is a conditional gift. If the condition is not fulfilled, then the ring should be returned. But, as always, there is an exception Like many things in life, if it's agreed between the parties that the ring should be retained, then that's that. Often this happens when it's a custom piece of jewellery that was made specifically for the person in mind. So now that I've gone on this tangent, what is the answer, you may ask? Well, it is a maybe. Welcome to the law, peeps. There's a lot of maybes. So now you're engaged. And you stay engaged. Yay! The date is set, but what about the legal stuff? You see, this is an NB thing to think about, and it's often left to the last minute. Please don't do this. I know that one doesn't get married to get divorced, but you never know where life will take you, and you want to be sure that you know how things will play out if things do go a bit pear-shaped. In South Africa, we have three marriage regimes. Two require a contract, i.e. a legally binding document, and the other is what we call the automatic regime, i.e. you literally don't need to do anything. Let's start with the contracts. Whichever contract you choose, this needs to be done before you get legally married. Otherwise, you'll be married in terms of the automatic regime, in community of property, and it's quite a palaver to change after your marriage has been registered at home affairs. So, go to an attorney, let them explain your options, go away, seek additional legal advice if you need it, and then make an informed decision. If you decide to sign a contract, this is what we call an anti-nuptial contract, i.e. it's done before the nuptials. Again, this is very important, especially from a cost conservation point of view. So once you've decided, you will then go back to your attorney. You'll give them all the necessary information if required. Then your attorney will draft the anti-nuptial contract and you'll be allowed to review it. If you are happy with the contents of the document, you will then sign it before a notary public. This is an attorney with an additional qualification who attests to certain important documents. The contract will then be registered at the deeds office. It's a legal requirement that the document is attested to by a notary public and it is registered at the deeds office. If this is not done, The contract is only enforceable between the parties and not against the rest of the world. It's important to note that registration at the deeds office must take place within three months of the date that the notary attested to the document. Again, I want to point out that this contract needs to be signed before you get married. Because if you later want to change it, it needs to be done via a high court application, which is hugely expensive. That's the sound of you breaking the bank if you don't take my advice. I know I keep harping on about it, but I've had to clean up a lot of these messes, which could have easily been avoided. Now for the contents of the anti-nuptial contracts. There are two. Marriage out of community of property, and then marriage out of community of property with the application of the accrual system. Let's start with marriage out of community of property without the accrual system. It's important to note that if you don't expressly exclude accrual from the anti-nuptial contract, it's deemed to be included. So if A and B decide to get married, Out of community of property, without the accrual system, it means that they each keep their separate estates, i.e. what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours. Whatever assets you had prior to the marriage remain yours and whatever is accumulated during the course of the marriage also remains yours. This also applies to whatever debt you have in your name. This is great because what is mine is mine, and what is yours is most definitely yours. Should the parties decide to get divorced, whatever you came into the marriage remains yours, whatever you accumulated in the marriage remains yours, and on the date of divorce, it's pretty simple how to determine each party's estates. This means that a divorce would be quite seamless, as it's not necessary to divide any assets. But as I said before, no one gets married thinking they're going to get divorced. Why choose this regime? Well, A and B have complete control over their respective property, so this works well for the control freaks. It's also great because if one spouse is declared insolvent, i.e. they cannot pay off their debts, the solvent spouse has a completely separate estate and none of their assets can be used to pay the insolvent spouse's debt. Why not choose this regime? Well, if the parties decide that one spouse is going to stay at home, or should one spouse earn substantially more than the other, covering most of the communal costs, on divorce this could have some far-reaching financial consequences. The consequences would only be felt by that spouse who stays at home or who earns substantially less. Unfortunately, in the society we live today, this is most often a woman. One thing that may come to the rescue is a maintenance claim. This is an entirely different topic in itself and will definitely be discussed in future podcasts. So, to recap, if A comes into the marriage with a hundred rand, and B comes into the marriage with two hundred rand, and neither of them have accumulated any funds during the course of their marriage, on the date of divorce. A will walk away with 100 Rand and B will walk away with 200 Rand. So, next episode on Flawed, I'll be discussing the next contract, which is a bit more complicated, out of community of property with the accrual system, and I'll be discussing the automatic regime. I promise you guys that I discuss new and exciting developments in the law. Well, this one is very new, having been signed into law on Friday by our president. Under the Civil Union Amendment Act, marriage officers are barred from objecting to solemnise same-sex marriages. You would think that this wouldn't be a thing, but it was. Section 6 of the Civil Unions Act provided that a marriage officer could write to the minister should they object to officiate a union between a same-sex couple on the basis of conscious, religion, or belief. This is the section's words, not mine. Of course, this was completely objectionable, but it was made even worse because even those marriage officers employed by Home Affairs could object in terms of Section 6, causing an even greater barrier for same-sex couples to be married. The effect of Section 6 was such that even though legally same-sex couples could form a valid civil union, logistically there were barriers to exercise this right. The Amendment Act gives Home Affairs 24 months to train those officials that were previously exempt under Section 6. Now, every single Home Affairs in the country is required to have a marriage officer, even during this 24-month period, who will conduct a civil union. I still believe that in comparison to heterosexual couples, same-sex couples face a myriad of additional hurdles from both the law and society in general when getting married. The amendment is definitely a step in the right direction in reducing discrimination, preserving dignity, and achieving equality for same-sex couples in South Africa. There is definitely more that the government can do and one can only hope that this amendment will be a springboard for changes in legislation to come. Thanks for listening to Flawed. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave a review, follow us on Insta, and DM me all your legal cues. And who knows, maybe it'll appear on an episode. Please note that this podcast doesn't constitute legal advice. And should you have a legal issue and require assistance, you would need to approach a legal practitioner who can help you with a specific area of law.